Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Garrett Cash to continue their Holy Roll series with a look at early African-American gospel composers Charles A. Tenley and Lucy E. Campbell. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say holy roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Garrett Cash to continue our history of African-American gospel music. And tonight we'll be talking about, uh, we'll be drawing on a book called We'll Understand It Better By and By, Pioneering African-American Gospel Composers, edited by, edited by Bernice Johnson-Reagan. Garrett, welcome back. Thanks for having me. A pleasure, and I've been looking forward to this one. It's sort of overwhelming how slow this is going, but we are getting them knocked out. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about Charles Tindley, that not quite the father of gospel music, because that's Thomas A. Dorsey, who's going to be our subject next time. We're going to talk about Charles Tinley, who was a precursor of Thomas A. Dorsey, and also Lucy Campbell. So, interesting pair of early gospel composers. Yeah, kind of the young grandparents of gospel. Yep, I think that's that's a good way to put it, the, the grandpappy and grandma of gospel. And, and uh, both of these uh, figures are early 20th century folks. Tinley, uh, much earlier, born 1851, and uh, Lucy Campbell is more, um, I think she was born later than that. <laughs> I have the date written down. But yeah, she, she's she's more of a 20th century figure, although she's active uh, by the teens. Uh, but she lives long enough to see. 1885, sorry. Eight, yeah. 
Thank you. 1885. So she's a little bit younger than Tindley, um, although he uh, was not ever enslaved. He was a freeborn son of slaves from the eastern shore of Maryland. But before we talk about these two, one uh, uh, last time we talked about barbershop and Jubilee and some of the developments uh, after the Civil War. And this um, period also saw a very important movement in the, around the turn of the century. This is the evangelical movement, the holiness movement, um, the Pentecostal movement, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles from 1906 to 1909 had a massive effect on American music. It took a long time for that enthusiasm and fervor to spill out, but um, that's something that that's gonna that was impacting. Campbell and Tindley as they created their work and they were hearing what was coming out of the Pentecostal movement and the holiness movement and it was um, incredibly powerful and, and fervent music people having an intense religious experiences speaking in tongues, washing each other's feet um, Elder William J. Seymour really ignited a revolution there in Los Angeles that took a long time to filter out into uh, the mainstream of American culture. Yeah, this is a uh, sect of Christianity that when people think of the term holy roller, slayed in the spirit, speaking in tongues, this is this is the 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 group that you're thinking of because it, it's really an it's an emphasis on um, kind of came about based on a theology that comes from the idea that at the day of Pentecost, which was a day where uh, after Jesus had ascended to the Father in heaven, after his resurrection in the book of Acts, uh, the Luke, the uh, author of the Gospel of Luke, and also the author of Acts, talks about how the disciples uh, were, were here for this day of Pentecost where the, uh, the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost uh, descends uh, like a dove and uh, and dwells in the followers of Christ, and uh, basically just uh, this uh, power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them the ability to do uh, things that Christ had done in his ministry, like perform miracles and uh, basically have the power of God within them to be able to do continue and do the ministry that Jesus had done, uh, even without him physically present with them. Uh, so, you know, when, when uh, Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm coming, uh, I, I will be uh, sending you one in my place who is uh, even greater than I, a great help. Uh, and so that's what he was talking about, the Holy Spirit. And so there are some uh, sects of Christianity that believe that uh, after the uh, the apostolic period, as it's called, which is the time of the apostles, the first disciples of Christ, that the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit ended after the apostolic period. So that would mean that uh, you know, believers now do not have the same powers of the Holy Spirit that the first apostles did. And then there's the uh, people like the Pentecostals who are uh, very much dedicated to the idea that the Holy Spirit is still active and is still a part of the uh, process of uh, becoming sanctified is what it's called, which means that you're becoming more and more holy, i.e. more and more like Christ. Uh, so, for instance, in the Baptist community now, a lot of people in the Baptist church don't believe 
uh, that the Holy Spirit is still active. I'm not saying all do, but so a, a fair amount of them do, at least in my experience in the South. And then there's a lot of people who, you know, like want to go to non-denominational churches or things like that, where they can try to uh, bring in that Holy Spirit element without necessarily going to Pentecostalism, which the criticism from the non-denominational Baptist camps is that the Pentecostals focus entirely on the Holy Spirit and say that, you know, to become saved, you have to speak in tongues, et cetera. So that's kind of, that's kind of the way a lot of the, you know, the uh, cultural clash happens within the church here is that a lot of the other uh, denominations view the Pentecostals as being too Holy Spirit focused or, you know, basically only viewing that as the only path to salvation. So that's kind of just a a context here for this. Yeah. And, not going to get into you know whose miracles are actually working but their powerful music is undeniable and um, particularly charles harrison mason's church of god in christ has had an enormous impact on american culture because of this fervor that people brought into their music and um it hit the african-american spiritual community hardest and a lot of churches i think found themselves kind of having to compete with that level of intensity that the holiness churches were bringing to their music even if they didn't adopt the full pentecostal uh, ethos um and and belief but horace clarence boyer is a guy that uh is a contributor to the the book we're drawing on this time and he's got a great quote that this new music was designed to capture the essence of the urban religious experience with its diverse elements of industry dense populations and pseudo integration and so black folks are getting out of the south they're getting away from the farms they're getting into cities increasingly throughout this period and it's a whole different world it's a world that has new needs and the um, spirituals and then the Jubilee is not sufficient. And this new form evolves to meet those needs. And so Charles Tindley and Lucy Campbell are two of the composers who kind of led the way in this music. Neither of them were Pentecostals. Tindley was a Methodist and Lucy Campbell was a Baptist, but they both adapted and led the music into new places So let's talk about Charles Tinley. Actually, let's go ahead and and play one of our songs. This is the great Washington Phillips, a true American eccentric, uh, doing one of Charles Tinley's songs, Take Your Burden to the Lord and Leave Them There. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. If you will trust him and never doubt, he will surely bring you out. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. I have the world from you withhold of its silver and its gold, and you'll have to get along with major sand. Yes, remember in God's word how he fed those little. And that was Washington Phillips is saying Charles Tindley's "Take Your Burden to the Lord and Leave Them There." I love that we're introducing people to Washington Phillips. I love that guy's music. Yeah, he's uh, he's got one of those sounds that truly doesn't sound like anything else that i've ever heard his i i I forget what they even call the instrument that he's playing it's almost like uh some kind of an auto harp of some sort but it's a it it has an otherworldly sound so that both the recording is vocal the instrument there's nothing that sounds quite like his recordings yeah absolutely unique and it almost sounds to me like he's manipulating multiple music boxes those little toy 
um, music boxes, but just incredible stuff. But let's talk about Tindley. Um, and we've got another quote. I think this is Boyer again saying, while the title, The Father of Gospel Music, rightly goes to Thomas A. Dorsey, the seed that Dorsey nurtured and brought to maturity had been planted as early as 1900. And by that, they mean Charles A. Tindley. Like I said, he was a freeborn uh, son of people who had been enslaved, grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, and then uh, migrated to Philadelphia, which is the nearest big city there, and founded the Tindley Temple. And... Um, this guy's just a powerhouse. I mean, he's he's running his own major church. He's a very in-demand preacher, drew big audiences, and he's a composer and songwriter. Just a really formidable person who created a spiritual community around him of people who are having a rough time. I mean, being black in America in the beginning of the 20th century – You've already got the short end of the stick. These these are folks, you know, the, the, they're in Philadelphia, probably better than the Mississippi Delta or Alabama, but still an incredibly racist society. Tons of economic dispossession and disadvantage. So these people are clinging to each other and using their religion to power themselves through to real achievement and accomplishment. And Tindley uh, had to have been an inspiring leader to his people. Um and the power of his music still comes through today. It's just—it's really an incredible story. I, I went out and got the kids' book about Tindley, which is a little thin on information, but the illustrations are great. And uh, I think he's a figure that that more people need to learn about—a true American musical hero. I agree, and he's one of these guys that really sums up too a lot of like kind of the two main strains here of the development of the black church in America of the power of his preaching and also his great musical legacy coming together. You have people later on also combining these two strains like Shirley Caesar, but he's definitely the uh, kind of first major figure in this. And he was well known for being a great preacher and having these, uh, profound yet simple uh, stories and uh, ways that he would help these people who were going through such hard times to be able to understand uh, not only the way to live in the world around them and to get through it, but to also uh, keep their eyes on the prize towards heaven. And his songs also reflect that as well. So he really had a uh, really a great ministry because he was able to do in two separate avenues the exact same goal that he was trying to achieve he did the same thing whether he was uh, preaching or composing music yeah just an absolute powerhouse community leader and a musical innovator and his uh music his songs um were modified spirituals and spirituals like we talked about in previous episode these were english language songs that were improvised and then remembered in these um, ring shout services, these quiet private meetings away from the slavers and the the uh, enslaved people would get away and and sing out in the woods and and do these call and response and bring a lot of the African traditions and culture that they had, you know. Uh, been robbed from them, but they they held on to, to these elements, but also speaking in English and and um, adapting the hymns that they that had heard uh, in the white people's church services 
And he also um, camp meeting songs were another element that influenced Tinley. And and these were songs that were sung at these big outdoor revival meetings that swept through uh, what the future United States started in the 18th century, had another big run in the 19th century. Tinley liked to have a salvation-based message. Um, His... Actually, that was before Tinley came along. All, almost all the songs were about the salvation, especially the hymns. Uh, they tended to have a standard verse course format of eight bars each, tended to have quarter and dotted eighth notes, and an antiphonal chorus, which means that it was a call and response chorus. That's a big element. The call and response thing is absolutely African culture coming through. But Tinley songs were neither spirituals nor hymns, and they comprised a whole new style. And that style is what we call gospel. Yeah, it's beautiful innovation here going on here. And uh, it's interesting because we definitely see the culture and transition here within Tinley's own church, because as we were kind of talking about some of the differences in denominations being an important influence here, one of the things that's going on within Tinley Temple is that there is a mix of the sort of more traditional Methodist style, austere style of uh, worship, which involves less uh, improvisation and shouting, etc., that you would expect in the Pentecostal uh, services. And in his services, it wasn't just simply this kind of austere Methodist style that most people would expect, and people described going to the services at his church and being surprised that really each member could receive the uh, music in their own way, and the quote here says that they could shout or get happy or be more quietly stirred, which I think is interesting because it shows that they're, he's, he's really bridging gaps here by creating something new and saying, you know, it's not just this way or the other way. We can perform some of the more stately classical style music that we've done like Handel but we can also do these new songs, whatever we're going to call them, because we don't know what they're called yet. And, we're, and we can do those to kind of speak a little bit more maybe to our current ur- urban lifestyles. Uh, so it's interesting that you can see just in his own congregation the transition happening. Yeah, absolutely. And this is coming in a period after the triumph of of the Jubilee style, which was started at Fisk University in Tennessee. And that was a style that very much emphasized sort of de-Africanizing or Europeanizing the spirituals, where these uh, students were taught very much to sing in an operatic or European style, where they're they're taught elaborate choral harmonies and their and restraint is is of the utmost and and this was a period when newly freed uh, african americans were trying to prove to the world that they were worthy of uh western civilization which i don't know if they deserved what the western civilization inflicted on them i mean like have the 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 perversity of the system where you know people are enslaved and robbed and plundered and and humiliated and denigrated for centuries and then are freed, and then it's upon them to prove that they're worthy of sharing Everything. the wonders of, of civilization. It's it's uh, some massive victim blaming. But anyway, in the 20th century, people like Tinley were 
beginning to be a little bit more free and they could relax a little bit and kind of be themselves and sing for themselves rather than for a, a white audience or an imagined white audience. And he's changing the the emphasis of the story. His his songs featured um, they focus on the specific concerns of individual black people, worldly sorrows, blessings and woes, as well as the joys of the afterlife. They mostly use the pentatonic pentatonic scale. That's the 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 scale with fewer notes common in African and also uh, Middle Eastern and Indian music. And the main thing is it allowed plenty of room for rhythmic, melodic, and lyric improvisation. It was crafted to be hospitable to the African-American performance practices. It left space for people to put in blue notes, those flatted thirds and sevenths that are you know, famous, we think of as, as the blues and blue notes. And uh, let's go ahead and hear our next tune. And this is um, this is going to be Elvis Presley himself doing "Stand by Me" by Charles Tinley. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. Stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. Stand by me. When the and that was Elvis Presley doing Charles Tinley's Stand By Me, not to be confused with the Benny King song from the early 60s, which was influenced by this. Um, this is the real stuff from Charles Tinley and a powerful interpretation. Yeah, and uh, uh, I love how Elvis, and I believe Elvis was responsible for the arrangements of uh, the album that that came from, How Great Thou Art. He, and in that arrangement, when the opening line is, when the storms of life are raging, stand by me, just even the beginning sound of it, the way that the, uh, I believe there might be some timpani in there and whatnot, it sounds like a rolling thunder coming. It's a kind of brilliant little, uh, musical nods of the lyric there uh but yeah that's that that version of that song is magnificent as you would expect and there there's so many great versions of that song it was it was hard to even pick one i mean of course we had to go with elvis but there's so many great ones there's the the caravans and the staple singers that song has been done many times and as you said it led directly to a Sam Cook kind of rewrite in some sense of the song in the early 60s, which then led to Benny King hearing Sam Cook's song and then rewriting it himself with Lieber and Stoller. So uh, that, that song has a lot of power in it that the that guys of that caliber could keep using it for their own purposes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just a classic American uh, song and has been interpreted and reinterpreted and, and holds its power. And, you know, um, Tinley's, knack for writing songs that left blank space where people could improvise where people could could uh, in, interpolate new lyrics where they could change the melody where they could uh, mess with the rhythm was perfect for black congregations who were uh, feeling a little bit free and and able to express in the safety of their own churches um, some of their african-american culture and you know, powerful stuff. And Tinley was not a trained musician. Reminds me of uh, Irving Berlin or something like that. He worked with musicians to transcribe his songs. He would 
work on them in his head for a long time. And he would only call in a transcriber when he had several songs uh, to work together. He published in batches uh, 12 times. He dropped uh, 12 drops, I guess, between 1901 and 1926. He, he dropped batches of songs. Uh, the big, big ones were early 1901. He had eight songs, 1905, another eight songs. And then two batches were published posthumously by his family after he had passed away. Um, he took an active role in his business, as you would expect from a man who's running his own church so successfully. And that church still stands and is active today in Philadelphia. He joined with other bishops to form the Soul Echoes Publishing Company and then published his first book in 1905, Soul Echoes, a collection of songs for religious meetings, and then um, formed another company, the Paradise Publishing Company, with his sons and three associates in 1916. And so he was a pioneer on the business side as well as the musical side, and he also pioneered in organizing gospel groups. He put together the Tindley Gospel Singers uh, in 1922, a group of seven men that um, performed his songs and other songs. So he was a builder and an organizer and somebody who could lead people just and do it all, you know, preach, run his business, run the church, run his publishing company, write the songs, get them transcribed, get them, get them put to sheet music and get them out there and sell them. Um, so he's the uh, first African-American pub to publish an original song collection. And some of the, the highlights of that first collection are what are they doing in heaven all overcome someday, which is of course later evolves into we shall overcome the anthem of the civil rights era. Uh, when the storms of life are raging, stand by me. We'll understand it better by and by the storm is passing over and take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. So Hall of Fame career. I mean, what else is there to say about Charles Tinley? Final thoughts on Tinley? I think that he was not just a, a guy that wrote some great songs and uh, has a church that's still standing. I mean, this is a guy and, and, and this is kind of interesting to think about when you uh, if you're someone who looks at a lot of different influential or important songwriters or artists like i tend to like read about these people is that this this is a guy who was a, a real a man of character a man who accomplished a lot in his time a man who worked really hard and it w- was a great innovator and we so often are talking about guys who you know murdered somebody like phil Spector did or uh you know, like people who uh, abused other people or allegedly abused other people. I mean, there, there's just so much, uh, you know, sadness and, and problems in the world of music and the and the people that we listen to. There's uh, a lot of these guys out there who are really influential that I know a lot of people who struggle to enjoy those people because their their character was just so flawed. They were, uh, you know, kind of doing, doing the wrong things in a lot of ways. And I, I think it's great to be able to, uh, shine a light on guys like this that to me have uh, had such an impact on the wider world of music and have made songs that have meant so much to so many people have gotten people through so so many things and they uh, are almost virtually forgotten which just seems to me to be the the opposite of what we ought to be doing is instead of just saying oh we're just gonna cancel these people and call it a day these are the kind of people that we should also be talking about and uh, lifting up and saying, these are the kind of guys that we want to see more of. You know what I mean? Like there's a story about Tenley that we read about in the book here where um, a, a, a person had kind of wandered into his church and 
apparently didn't have a home and had uh, expressed the issue to Tinley. And Tinley says to the entire congregation, uh, okay, well, so, you know, every, everybody here has got a lot of people in their house. I've got a lot of people in my house, but surely one of you can take an extra person. And then it's like crickets after that. And then he says, well, if one of you guys isn't going to do it, I mean, I've got like 10 people in my house, but I'm going to do it. I'll do it if one of you guys don't. And then finally someone spoke up and said, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, and the person who was recounting this story said that they were just uh, amazed when they saw this, that they they saw what Tinley had done as being showing the true Christian character. So, you know, I think that Tinley's definitely a person to celebrate, to listen to his music, to, uh, you know, appreciate the impact he had. Thomas Dorsey, who's, if you're going to know anybody who's a gospel pioneer in terms of their composition, You'll probably know his name, but not Tenley's. But he said in 1942, Tenley originated this style of music, gospel. And what I wanted to do was further what Tenley started. So, I mean, from the man himself right there, he said Tenley originated this style of music. I, I think that kind of says it all. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, Dorsey might be the, the, the Christ figure of gospel music, and Tenley is the John the Baptist figure, the precursor. Totally. The guy, yeah, the, the baptizer, and uh, um, yeah, and Tinley's just somebody I'm proud to have gotten to know him a little bit researching this. He's just a, an awesome person, and the music's great. So let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about Lucy Campbell, and she's a bit of a pistol. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Now I'll head south to Tennessee and talk about Lucy Campbell. She's actually born in Mississippi, um, but her father was a railroad man, and he was killed en route uh, coming home to meet his new baby, baby Lucy, and so family. Yeah, just just tragic. And and the, she was raised in Memphis, um, and the the her mother favored her older sister Laura. And you know one example is that they could only afford one 
set of piano lessons and older sister Laura got him and not Lucy. There's multiple stories in the books of her mom being pretty mean to Lucy. Um, but you can't help but root for Lucy. She, she ended up becoming a pillar of, of her community in Memphis. She taught English for 43 years at Booker T. Washington High School in Memphis and was uh, a pillar of multiple churches, although she got herself in some controversies at those churches. And so I just came away really loving Lucy Campbell. She seems like somebody who was just lively as all get out and um, tough as nails and her music. Some of her most famous compositions include He Understands, He'll Say Well Done, Heavenly Sunshine and the King's Highway. So she made her musical contribution, but she was also uh, making constant social con- contributions. She was a big wheel at the National Baptist Convention, known as NBC, before the TV and radio network were, were created. Um, it was the largest black organization in the world at that time. And uh, by 1916, she was the music director of the NBC Music School and the Baptist Young People's Union Congress and organized over a thousand voice choirs at her time. So um, somebody who used her music to organized these enormous congregational uh, conventions and, um, you know, undoubtedly made an impact in the world. What was your take on Lucy? Well, uh, like I would assume most people listening to this, I had never heard of her at all. And interesting, yeah. interestingly, I went on you. I, I always like to go on YouTube and we're researching this to see what videos pop up, maybe documentaries or clips, people talking about these people. And I looked up Tinley and there was a fair amount of stuff on there, covers of his songs, uh, maybe short little kind of uh, buy a shoestring documentary things on him. But I typed in Lucy Campbell's name and you know what came up? Zilch. I mean, go type in her name on YouTube and like the first thing you'll see is has literally nothing to do with her. I mean, I think the first result that has something to do with her is maybe four or five videos down. And it's the only reason why it comes up is that it's part of the name of an album of her songs. Um, So, I mean, she's she really seems to be off the radar for for the Internet and uh, people studying this music and whatnot, which to me, after reading this and learning about her. Uh, seems like a huge crime and uh, a mistake uh, if you're interested in the way the gospel music developed and the important composers in it. I mean, she seems to be Mount Rushmore of gospel music worthy. Uh, and I think that uh, she was a incredible force as a personality and a uh, woman well ahead of her time, uh, probably still ahead of the time. And uh, I, I was just very impressed with her, like you said. I, I am still kind of considering all the angles of her life that are uh, so unique and interesting that I'm not even fully processed it yet. Yeah, it's 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 a lot to digest, and and she's um, a little bit hidden, I think, because a lot of her work was not just songwriting. You know, she she wrote plenty of great songs, but she also was a, a compiler and was on the selection committee for uh, NBC, the National Baptist Convention, when they assembled their hymnals and songbooks. So she's a, an editor and and um, kind of like a blogger like me, where she she's she's picking, sifting through what songs should be in these spirituals. And so she um, 
some of the books you worked on were Gospel Pearls from 1921. This is a very important because it's one of the first times the word gospel is used in conjunction with this music. Also, Golden Gems, Inspirational Melodies, Spirituals Triumphant. And she always campaigned for new music and new artists to be included in these books. But Gospel Pearls, I think, really kind of tells the blend of things. It includes hymns um, by dead white guys like Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley, also Fanny J. Crosby, but also had revival songs like Ira D. Stanky and Homer Roadhaver. Uh, Stanky was interesting. I came across him reading one of the books about the Fisk Jubilee singers, and he was uh, evangelizing in England at the same time the Jubilee singers were there. So some 19th century stuff from African-American. No, Stanky's not African-American. But then 20 gospel songs in the book, a new and different singing style that sought to capture the ecstasy of the holy, holiness church singers without the excess. So they're trying to strike a balance here. And the holiness churches just immediately were drawing people just for the music. I mean, plenty of people thought, oh, I'm not interested in their, in their preaching, but man, I love this music and, and we're drawing back. So that's something that the Baptists and the Methodists and other congregations had to compete with. And they right. had to to find music that could bring that power, but they didn't want to go, you know, full snake handler, as it were. They didn't want to go quite as far as the holy uh, holiness church singers, or not that the holiness are. I don't want to get into the snake handler aside. That's a very specific set that does the snake handling. <laughs> yeah, so. that, 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 that's that's a little more. Uh, I, would, I would say kind of the uh, backwoods Alabama kind of style. Yeah, that's more Appalachian uh, white folks. So, and and you know, if you're in, but, but, but you got you got the you got the spirit right. It's it's uh, doing doing what seems to most people to be kind of crazy things through the spirit. Um, but, and I, I want to point out, I mean, Gospel Pearls also included six songs by Charles Tinley, so that ties back in, but, um, yeah, she, she was a part of really one of the mo- I'd say the most important selection process for codifying the, uh, the, the repertoire of gospel singers at this time, because you got to remember in 1921, when Gospel Pearls comes out, this is not a time where records of gospel music are available. This is not a time where you even really have like the radio to listen to gospel programs. You don't have uh, uh, traveling gospel performers yet. I mean, there there's literally nothing to experience gospel music with besides these books, because uh, at this time, the sheet music is kind of king. You're going to um, you know be able to experience the music by buying this book, performing the uh, the songs at, at the, the piano in your home or someone at your church could buy it and they could use it to perform the songs at your church. Uh, but the, but there, there's no other alternative options to experience gospel music really at this time. Uh, you know, Dorsey has not even gotten started with touring around his sheet music yet. So this is very early on that she's selecting the music that's going to become the bedrock of what this entire uh, new style is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how fast things are moving this time because, you know, 1921, hardly any African-American performers have been recorded. A few people have James Reese Europe, uh, W.H. Handy, uh, a couple others. But the big explosion happens with Crazy Blues in 1920 with Mamie Smith and then Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and others start uh, making blues records. Jazz artists finally get to record right around this time. So even though 
it, it's just it's compressed and a lot is happening in this period the 1920s are a huge period like 1921 there's basically no radio radio is for super geeks and hobbyists but yeah. just five six years later and and the radio networks are going to be immense and become the leading uh, uh, form of American news and entertainment and have a massive impact on the record industry, which is peaking in 1921 and it's, or 1920 actually. And it's, it's only when they start getting their market share eroded by radio that then they start looking for African-American artists and, and rural white artists and others, because they're kind of desperate to get some growth in anywhere they can get it. So, uh, Gospel Pearls is kind of perfect because a lot of gospel artists do get to record in the next 10 years, more like starting 27, 28 in that period. And Gospel Pearls is definitely one of their key source books that they're drawing their repertoire from. So Lucy Campbell is a little bit of a behind the scenes player, even though she's also a composer in her own right. But she's having a bigger impact through um, her work as an aggregator and a compiler on these things. And she also said helped set the performance style for gospel music. Uh, her music was influenced by the lined hymns in which the preacher lined out the words. And this is a, a primitive way of teaching music to people, not just in African-American congregations, but plenty of Anglo-American congregations as well, where you had a, a pre-literate audience or chorus congregation. Um, and the preacher would sing a line and then the, the congregation would repeat it and followed by the congregation. That's kind of an antiphonal uh, song, singing is what that's called. And she um, drew on that style for her own work. She also... And, and, and I would say, too, that, I mean, this is still... a thing. Like, I, that style specifically may not be as popular, the actual line hymn singing, but it's still a technique that's used in contemporary worship music. I, uh, I can tell you that pretty much any worship leader I've ever seen at any church will start to kind of say, the, like, speak the line a little bit before he starts singing the line. They may say, you know, you are worthy. And then they go and they start singing the line so that people kind of know which verse we're on at that point. So uh, this is still a part of the, the through line all the way to, to now. Very true. And let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is the great Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers doing End of My Journey. He'll Understand, He'll Say Well Done by Lucy Campbell. The best of your service Telling the world That the Savior is come You be not dismayed When men don't And that was a pre-pop Sam Cooke when he was a gospel singer in good standing with the Soul Stirrers doing uh, Lucy Campbell's End of My Journey. He'll understand. He'll say well done. And there's a great story about the origin of this song, um, which... This song really hit me. I, I actually heard Ernest Tubbs' version, I think, of this when I was younger. And there's a Walt Whitman poem uh, to those who have failed in Undertaking's Vast that this reminds me of. And it just it hits a tender spot in my heart. And Lucy, like anybody else, had her share of struggles. We talked about how she lost her father when she was just an infant. Um, and apparently it was a little cantankerous because they tell a story where she actually got booted from her congregation because 
she had organized some resistance to a new preacher that was that had been hired from Florida and was coming up to Memphis to take over the church and turned it into such a ruckus that um, one of the deacons who was sort of her surrogate father even stepped up to put his hand on her shoulder and she bit it off and then ends up uh, getting booted. And, and this is why she was famous and very influential with other people. So, I mean, she's kind of using her power to try to sway people to her side and say, yeah, we, we all don't like this guy and we're going to well, yeah, we're going to take a stand against this. So, I mean, that uh, that deacon really had to kind of shut her down to try to get the entire church from defecting. Yeah, yeah, she she had, and this is a big, big congregation. This is a multiple thousand people congregation, and she had at least a hundred people uh, organized. It didn't go into at all what her reasoning was or or what what it was about that preacher that she found objectionable. But um, I just. This I love this song. I, I love it's inspiring to me when somebody suffers something, tries their best and fails, and then comes back with this gym. And um, I find it of great comfort. Um, and and thanks Lucy for for putting that one together for us. Um, Same and here. She, and, and I want to say too that uh, something I thought was really cool was that um, Horace Boyer we talked about earlier has said that this is the second most popular and performed African-American gospel song behind Thomas Dorsey's Precious Lord, which uh, is just mind-boggling. I mean, just amazing that she accomplished that, being a woman at that time, uh, doing uh, songwriting, which is just not something you would expect. Yeah, that's the quality of the music, the power of 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 the of the ministry coming through there, and Lucy's gifts being shared, and and you have to think that the sexism was a factor in her in her church political struggles as well. It's very hard for a woman to um, exercise power and leadership without getting sabotaged and and pulled back. Um, put in her place as they say but um back to the music she she was big on gospel ballads um it was a passion for her she she liked to write a lot of songs that were slow songs in which the singer thinks out loud about joys or sorrows she frequently wrote four four time she also liked to write anthems and which are the old school western european protestant style she wrote nine anthems including there's a fountain filled with blood and just as i am without one plea but one of her innovations was the gospel waltz, where um, sometimes they'd do it in three, four time, but also six, eight, or even nine, four, or nine, eight time, which um, pretty un- unusual stuff. And, and listen to some of these. To me, they all sound like three, four. I cannot tell <laughs> six, eight. From- <laughs> I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, I, I must, I must be, uh, you know, meter deaf or something, because I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not like like if I hear Dave Brubeck, I, I can tell that that's a weird time signature. But this is this sounds like kind of three four to me. But you know what do I know? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue with the musicologist about this. But but Lucy <laughs> liked to 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 put a little waltz time into it, and and uh, that this was ended up being a very influential and popular style that came straight from her. Ray Charles used that uh, in his song "I'm a Fool for You." He was notorious for basically rewriting gospel songs and turning them into pop songs, um, and the, this is this is one of those examples of it. Um, and then uh, the uh, We'll get into a little bit of the organizational stuff that she was involved in. That the, the NBC, which was the biggest black organization in the world, it split in 1915 because the Reverend Richard Henry Boyd had formed a publishing board 
for the the NBC, but it turns out he had formed it for himself. And so he, he formed this publishing board to publish music for the National Baptist Convention. It turns out he had copyrighted them all in his own name. So some of the people didn't like that. And eventually there was a split and he took his congregations and formed the National Baptist Convention, unincorporated, distinct from the National Baptist Convention. But that happens in 1915. And Lucy steps up in 1916 and is one of nine organizers of the post-split conference, the first conference of the of the slightly reduced NBC. And so this tells you the kind of leadership that she was dealing with and she's um, used her music to set the tone of the meeting. She's organizing the choir. She's picking the repertoire and struck a tone of exuberant yet controlled joy, which I guess is her brand. And, and, and again, it gets right back to that thing where they, they want to get the fervor of the holiness church, but they don't want to have it completely out of control. They want to have, have it, you know, um, restrained and contained yet still keep all that power and um you know and this music to me the 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 starting as i did as a rock and roll fan it's very clear now to me that that wild abandoned style of people like little richard and jerry lee lewis and elvis presley came straight out of the Pentecostal church and, and, and trickle down by way of people like Rosetta Tharp and also people like Lucy Campbell who kept, kept that torch lit and passed it down. But Lucy wouldn't have wanted to go full little Richard. I think she was aiming more for a fat domino type, a little, <laughs> a little bit more dignified. Um, but um, yeah, she was able to harness that power and to use the power of the music to organize these really large groups of people and set a tone. And it just um, strikes me as a magician. I mean, this music is magic, and she's one of these people that can use music to control people and lead people and steer people where they want to go. And I think we're lucky that she was steering people in a positive direction. Every year at the convention, she would have a new song, and this was for decades. And I mean, they people would talk about how her coming out with the new song that year, it was like everybody waiting with bated breath for the new Beatles album or something. It was just, you know, oh, Lucy's going to do her new song. I wonder what it's going to be like. You know, this is just she, she was she was kind of it, you know, like there were even into the 40s 50s you start getting other writers like thomas dorsey and roberta martin etc lucy was still seen as like you gotta watch what she does because she you know she's such a big influence so powerful her songs are uh so meaningful to these people in this place at this time the way that she seems to write directly to them i mean her songs still have this great universality to them that they still make a big impact i mean on one of the um, most popular Sam Cooke compilations, uh, the Portrait of a Legend compilation, which I think has ended up on some of the greatest albums ever list and whatnot, the first track on it is Jesus Gave Me Water, and that's one of her songs. And there's just uh, there's so, so many of these songs that have still stayed with us, something within me, uh, you'll understand, say, well done. And, they, and the songs just have this uh, aura about them, like you're saying, this kind of magical aura that draws you really into the emotion. Like Charles Tinley, I would say, just in contrast, 
uh, he he does have this swell of emotion in the song, but it's more almost in a storytelling sense. Whereas I feel like Lucy has a little bit more of a um, you know a, a psycho- psychological kind of uh, mindset where it's about the inner thinking of the believer trying to make it through this life. Yeah, it's kind of more first person, I think. And and you mentioned something within, um, which is an incredibly powerful song. But actually, Steph's telling me it's time to cue. So let's hear our final song. This is Marion Williams and the Stars of Faith doing Lucy Campbell's In the Upper Room. Lucy Campbell's In the Upper Room, performed by Marion Williams and the Stars of Faith. But I wanted to tell the story of Something Within, and it's kind of unfair to talk about these songs so we pick other ones to play, but y'all get out there and get on Spotify and YouTube and find these songs. This is this is well worth it. And I've, I've got playlists that will be in the show notes that have all the songs that we're talking about in it, so you don't even have to worry about finding them. I already put them together for you, so don't be lazy. Go and listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And and Something Within has a great story where she saw a young blind singer, a kid named Connie M. Roseman, who um, was singing uh, church songs out on the street for money. And, and she saw some sports kind of betting each other that they could get him to sing blues. And there was this there's just been this conflict between gospel and the blues, although Thomas A. Dorsey, and we'll talk about him next time. He didn't feel any conflict. He was perfectly happy to write tight like that or uh, take my hand, precious Lord. But a lot of people, and Lucy Campbell's one of them, saw blues music and popular music as evil and and corrupt and that, you know, good people should be singing gospel. And this young Connie Roseman really inspired her because he stood his ground and he would not sing the blues songs even when he was offered $5. And that was a period of time when that was a lot of money. You could buy a full meal with all the fixings and all the sides for five bucks. So something within a very much, you know, one of the songs where we know the story behind it. And like you said about uh, Lucy Campbell, though, she kept evolving. She lived quite late into the second half of the 20th century and adapted. She saw Thomas Dorsey and heard his music. She heard Sally Martin's music. She heard Mahalia Jackson. She saw Mahalia Jackson singing. And and so things like Jesus Gave Me Water from 1946, which you just mentioned, that was written directly in response to Mahalia Jackson for Mahalia Jackson to sing. And, you know, even a child can open the gate in 1952. That was inspired by another young talent she met. This was a Dr. J. Robert Bradley, who was a little kid out fishing for crawdads. And he heard the singing in the church and wanders in there with his muddy bare feet and he's dirty. And some of the, the bougie church moms are like, get out of here. Get this dirty kid out of here. And Miss Lizzie said, no, let's let this kid stay. He's been drawn by the music and turns out to be one of her great interpreters. Although I've had a real hard time finding any music by J. Robert Bradley. Yeah, so there's only one song of his on Spotify, hardly anything on YouTube. It's That's pretty bad. Yeah, and so there's. We know that there were some vinyl records, and we're looking for those. Garrett, I've 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 
you know, deputized you to go out, hit the hit the used record stores and find us some Dr. J. Robert Bradley. Cause now, I've, got, I've got my YouTube channel where I'm uploading ripped records. So I'm going to start ordering these and uh, resolving this issue for everybody. But uh, the one song that you can hear on Spotify of his is a version of Amazing Grace. And just based on that, I would say that he definitely had that very operatic, big voice. He almost sounds like a male Mahalia Jackson. Uh, so if you like that kind of operatic style gospel, uh, he really had a cool voice for, for that. That was, a, that was a great track, him doing Amazing Grace. Cool. And so, yeah, we're on the hunt and hoping to hear more of Dr. J. Robert Bradley. It's kind of fun in this day of the celestial jukebox to actually find somebody that you can't hear right away. Um, and and recorded full LPs for big gospel labels like Nashborough and yet still can't find his stuff. So, I mean, he's, he's kind of uh, he, he's it's not like he was totally underground. He's on a major branch and yet somehow we can't listen to him. But that's the Internet for you. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll we'll find it, and uh, maybe some of our listeners can get out there or have it already in their collections. So, um, yeah. yeah. So so, um, but this has been an exciting one. Tinley and and Campbell were totally new to me, and it's been um, this is the raw stuff. This is this really powerful. Both of them have had their work performed by, you know, all stars of of the gospel tradition and p- people like Elvis that are that are sort of gospel adjacent as well. Um, just just amazing stuff any final thoughts that's the playlist i put together of lucy campbell alone just to give you an idea who's on here would be sam cook bb king clara ward rosetta tharp johnny cash ernest tubb the carter family wilson pickett the blind boys of mississippi it's that mahalia jackson dorothy love Coates. i mean you know this is the real deal these people know a good song when they hear it yeah, absolutely. Some biggies. And although old A.P. Carter had to copyright the song for himself. Uh, of course. <laughs> AP As per usual. Pierre. Yeah. Ralph Peer, you know, wanted those copyrights. So 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 they did that stuff. But Lucy Campbell got got her share of shine, but she needs some more. So check her out and check out Charles Tinley. And for Garrett Cash, I'm Nate Wilcox. And we've been discussing some excerpts from We'll Understand It Better by and by pioneering African-American gospel composers edited by Bernice Johnson Reagan. And we'll be back, back next week to talk about Thomas A. Dorsey, the father of gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Garrett Cash returns for another installment of Holy Roll focused on Thomas A. Dorsey, the father of gospel music. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 